spread the word. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney, make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Heritage Voices, episode 54. I'm Jessica Uquinto and I'll be your host today. And today we are talking about Quetzon voices, Quetzon views. Before we begin, I'd like to honor and acknowledge that the lands I'm recording on today are part of the Nuch or Ute People's Treaty lands, the Dineta, and the Ancestral Puebloan homeland. So today we have Zion White, Charles Arrow, and Aaron Wright on the episode, and they're going to introduce themselves here in a minute. But first, let me tell you a little bit about what we're talking about. So Archaeology Southwest is working with several tribes in southern Arizona to establish permanent protection for the Great Bend of the Gila, which is a rich cultural landscape nestled between Yuma and Phoenix. Today we are speaking with representatives of Archaeology Southwest and the Fort Yuma Quechan tribe who have been documenting this landscape over the past several years. And just a quick note that Archaeology Southwest is a sponsor of the Archaeology Podcast Network, but they have been a great friend of the Heritage Voices long, long before that they were a sponsor. And I've been bugging them to get someone on the show for a while now. So not just because they're sponsored, but just because I think they're great. So welcome everyone to the show. Welcome. Hello. 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 So this is Aaron Wright. I'm a preservation anthropologist with Archaeology Southwest in Tucson, Arizona. My name is Charles Arrow. I'm a member of the Fort Yuma tribe. I've been working with Archaeology Southwest for the last couple of years, documenting and doing data entry for the petroglyphs that we're working on. And I'm Zion White, a member of the Quechan tribe as well, grown up on the reservation all my life, and I'm fortunate to be on the Elk Group Project along with Charles Arrow working with Aaron Wright. Perfect. All right. So I'm really excited to start with the question that I always start with, but I'm, I'm interested to hear the different ways that the three of you got interested I guess let's start first with just archaeology in general or this this type of work in general, and then we can get into the specifics of this project later. Well, I guess I'll start. This is Zion again. And with archaeology, it's a part of uh, our culture as indigenous people. And I've always been a part of my culture with uh, singing and dancing and learning about cultural history. But I've been un- un- like unknowing of petroglyphs and I haven't really spent too much time looking for them or seeing them personally. And I was with the volunteering with our Quachan Culture Committee at the time. And this opportunity came up to intern with Archaeology Southwest. And I was went for the opportunity and they were gracious, gracious enough to let us on. So my passion for archaeology really started, you know, when I was young, being involved in my culture. And now I'm just uh, involved in a different side of my culture, which being, you know, logging petroglyphs and now entering them in this database, which hopefully will preserve them for a longer period of time. Well, for myself, I could say archaeology 
really came into my life when I was living in Tucson. I have a couple of buddies of mine who are archaeologists that work with different companies out there in Tucson. I'm not sure which ones, but when I would talk to them after they came home and stuff, I'd be interested in hearing what they had actually done. A lot of uh, excavation and survey stuff. And it was kind of interesting to me because I, I was pretty much ignorant of archaeology until I was talking to them. And then they were telling me about cultures in the area. So that was my first real interest. But I was fortunate enough to be able to work with Archaeology Southwest through the cultural committee on my tribe. My aunt was a member. And she had said there was an opportunity to learn a little bit more about our history. So it was interesting. Definitely different from the job description she had told me. So I didn't think I was going to stay with it. But uh, here I am two years later, still on this project with, with Aaron. And it was just really that first week that got me into the that first day, really, of working with Aaron, finding out. Uh, pottery shirts and just random little bits of pottery and stuff is like it was just blew my mind to think that there were people out there after a while like people survived out there and before i knew it, it was back to my own tribe my own culture and stuff we we're all like in that general area so so this is aaron i've been interested in archaeology since i was a little kid i'm from southeast ohio appalachia country and uh right there on the ohio river and uh, so, you know, my earliest memories are walking around uh, what we call mounds in that part of the world, the mound culture, uh, Hopewell and Adena mounds and uh, the Marietta earthworks. I pretty much grew up in Marietta. And so it's been a part of my life since I can remember. And, you know, coming from the east, we don't have well-defined uh, descendant communities. So archaeology out there for me into my early adult years was done in a particular way and for a particular cause. And I moved out West. I got my first job in, uh, in New Mexico out of college about a little over 20 years ago. So it was a real eye opener to be around archeology span where there were descendant communities still in place. And, uh, so, so just since then I've been, uh, you know, working on my own personal development with, you know, learning about, you know, the great people that, made this country great before we came along. And uh, I spent the early days of my career in cultural resource management, uh, predominantly working for compliance for mines. And so the, my, the first five years of my archaeological career, we were salvaging sites or not really even sites. We were salvaging the data from sites before they were blown up. And uh, coming from Appalachia, that was a painful legacy in, in, in that part of the world. So I took the first opportunity I could get to sort of work for the other side. And um, so for the past 15 years, I've been associated with Archaeology Southwest and, you know, we're heavily invested in pr preservation and protecting heritage places. And uh, the past four years, I've been working on a project in the Great Bend of the Gila. And um, for the past two years, I've been fortunate to actually work with members of the, of, uh, the Quetzon in the field it's been uh, so far the highlight of my career. Okay, so I really love the theme that you were touching on there. And I'm, I kind of want to ask all three of you now, um, you were talking a little bit about how archaeology was maybe different than you thought it was going to be. So first of all, for you, Aaron, could you maybe talk about, you know, have you been back to those mounds? How How is your perspective 
on archaeology changed. I mean, obviously you talked about um, working with descendant communities and these other aspects, but maybe going back to uh, where it all started, I guess. And then um, the same question for the other two of you, you know, how has doing this type of work changed your perspective on archaeology? Like what what um, perspectives did you have about the field before doing this type of work. So Aaron, why don't we, we start back with you and the, the question about the mounds and then we'll go to Chuck next. My perspective on archaeology has changed and is constantly changing. Uh, when I first got into the field, it was about the data. It was very much a science paradigm and uh, anymore it's about honoring others and respecting land. And um, doing what I do is not necessarily for the data, it's for the people. And so when I've gone back to my homeland, um, which is very infrequent, it was I left my homeland because I didn't like it. <laughs> when I go back there now, I have a very much a, a different appreciation for where I'm from. And, uh, you know, definitely the mounds, the archaeology of my homeland is, is, has been important. I have a new appreciation for it. I really have a new appreciation for how the community of Marietta, Ohio is really invested in preserving those mounds. And, and they have been for, you know, well over 225 years. So I guess I've, I've come full circle and I am I'm very proud of where I'm from. Love that. Chuck? Well, my perspective really changed with just working this job. I, the only other like history and culture I had experienced was through funerals and just other other gatherings and stuff on the reservation so i didn't really i don't i don't i really don't know anything as far as my culture goes so when i started working this job it was kind of an eye-opener to see like people have been out there for as long as they have and they had a voice they had had something to say they 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 were families they were people they were just they were out there and going out there and actually documenting stuff like that, it just, it just, it was crazy. I couldn't, couldn't believe it. Like we have to, we have to document and save all these things, these sites and these petroglyphs and stuff, because then what I did realize was there is a lot of destruction and just blatant, you know, not, I don't want to say ignorance, but people that, that do like to go out to reservations because we do have recreational areas and a lot of the sites that we do work on are recreational areas. The, the amount of destruction that goes on, it's sad. It's sad to see like people just running over pottery shards or, you know, just history, history of the people in the area. So it was just a job to begin with. And now I can see the the impact that we're having because we are, we are having magazines put out and articles and stuff like that about the job we're doing because we're actually making a difference of like preserving culture we're we're part of the movement i guess or something like it's it's more and more important with every uh, trip out to the field yeah absolutely and we will be including the links to the archaeology southwest magazine about this topic it's beautiful you should definitely check it out and it goes 
I'm sure a lot more in depth than what we're going to be able to get to in this podcast. But Archaeology Southwest, they always put out a, a beautiful magazine. And I love that they always make a point of including the descendant community perspectives. And then we'll also include uh, at least one other article, maybe some others in the show notes. So definitely check out the show notes. And last but not least. Hey, guys. My perspective on archaeology when starting this job, like I stated before, I hadn't really seen this side of my culture as far as petroglyphs. But now I get to be around like thousands of panels and thousands of petroglyphs. And I'm the one uh, logging them along with, you know, Chuck and Aaron. And we're out there with our clipboards in the middle of nowhere. And uh, it's really uh, impactful to me because, you know, like I said, we get to be the ones. And so uh, grateful for the opportunity through Archaeology Southwest to be doing this. And I hope to see, you know, the end goal is preservation in, in what we're doing. And that's what I hope to see because my ignorance, I guess, to archaeology or uh, rather was, you know, me thinking we're going to be going out and digging for things or going out moving things or I don't, I don't know, you know, but now it's uh, more just what's on the surface and what do, what do we see out there? And there's a lot. And um, like Chuck said, you know, there's a lot of articles and, you know, things getting published about the work we're doing. And it's uh, uh, really touching to see that the level of people, uh, people out there actually care about what we're doing and what we're trying to preserve, even though they might not be indigenous or from the same tribe, you know, they uh, really care about preserving what other people put there. And that's uh, something great to see. So my, I guess I really got an appreciation for archaeology more than anything. So, you know, my interpretation on it. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess we're at about a break point and I want to get into the more specifics of this project after after we get back from the break so we'll be we'll be back here in a moment chris webster here for the archaeology podcast network we strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world one way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once we do that through the use of zencaster that's z-e-n-c-a-s-t-r zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest just send them a link to click on and that's it zencaster does the rest they even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code HEVO, H-E-V-O. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right. And we are back from our first break. And before we get into the specifics on the, the Great Bend of the Gila project, 
I'm curious uh, if either of you, Zion or Chuck, have had really heard anything about the area prior to working there. Yeah, if if it had been something that that had come up for you beforehand. Well, with the Gila Bend area in itself, it's really interesting part of the Quetzal history. Our history as Quetzal people is not only ours, but it's shared with other indigenous tribes throughout the Southern California and through Southern Arizona. And it follows a, a pattern of migration. It's a, it follows a story, a history that we have that starts in Needles, California at Avicome, a Newbury Mountain, going down to the coast towards San Jacinto Peak, towards Baja, California, in the San Diego area, back towards Yuma. And then in Yuma, without saying too much, a historical uh, leader in our tribes, somebody very important to us, they passed away in Yuma. And as a part of the history, you know, they migrate towards South Mountains in Phoenix. So that area in between Yuma and South Mountains is, is Gila Bend. And in that area, there's so much history that correlates to that area in particular because of the things that we're finding out there and able to see. A lot of the images and petroglyphs correlate to the animals that are incorporated into the Quechan history because when we talk about Quechan history, it's not only people that are incorporated into these stories, it's the animals as well. So these animals are key characters in, in these stories in history. So my knowledge of Hilla Bend is, is that it's like a, it follows a storyline from all the way in Needles, California, down to the Southern California coast, back towards Yuma, up to South Mountains, and then back to Avicome. And that's not only Quechan history, like I stated, it's shared between other indigenous cultures throughout you know, the Southwest. So could could you all maybe talk about the moment that it became recognized that there should be, you know, more protection for what sounds like a very important place and um, also that aspect of, of working with the other tribes that you mentioned um, and coming together on this effort? So at Archaeology Southwest, we've been envisioning a landscape scale preservation for the Great Bend region, which we define as pretty much from where the salt and the Gila come together outside of Phoenix to around Dateland, uh, Agua Caliente Mountains, about 70, 75 miles upriver from Yuma. And we've been invested in a in an effort out there for about a decade. And I came onto the project about six years ago. And we were totally just looking at the archaeology. And I was blown away by just how rich the cultural landscape is out there from an archaeological perspective. And when I got into the literature and trying to figure out who the descendant communities were, that was really a dimension that hadn't been explored too well for that region. And the more I read, the more I learned. Currently, there's actually right in the Great Bend, there's the small community of San Lucy, which is a district of the Tohono O'odham Nation. And they're right there in Gila Bend. But outside of that community, there, there really weren't any contemporary indigenous communities right there in the Great Bend. We've identified th- at least 13 federally recognized tribes that have ancestral and cultural and historical connections to the Great Bend of the Gila, stretching from California to New Mexico and, of course, Arizona. And so we got really interested in reaching out to the tribal communities to learn about their values for that landscape. And it's through that process where the current project became a reality 
And about four years ago, I um, I seek some assistance from the National Endowment for the Humanities to work with several tribes to actually do field recording on public lands in the Great Bend of the Gila. And so we we were operating on that for a number of years. And then when COVID became a reality, came into our lives, we actually sought additional assistance from the National Endowment for the Humanities so that we could, over the past year, we've been working remotely, pretty much digitizing all of the field data that we collected. And then on top of that, digitizing other people's field data that they've collected in the Great Bend area, but then also across Southern Arizona into a pretty large database. And uh, we've called the project the Lower Gila River Ethnographic and Archaeological Project. But amongst amongst the insiders here, we call it LGREEP. Great. So could you talk a little bit more about... You, you mentioned that you've been taking the data and, you know, putting it into this database, but what data specifically are you putting in there? Like what field work were you guys doing prior to COVID specifically? Well, I started with the project um, before Zion had come up, come on. And at that time we were just, we were doing a lot of sur- survey work. So we're out there just looking for or actually like going through sites and locating pottery shards and stuff like that. It's just, and it was really just pottery shards to begin with. And then after a while we move, you know, we'd have to move on. And then we started doing work on petroglyphs. So we would go out to a site that Aaron had researched or whatever. And we would go out there and we would basically just walk the area until we found something, a rock would, you know, petroglyph or scratch marks or something like that. And we would just document. So Aaron would go running around with his GPS and his compass so we can get a bearing or like a general direction what the petroglyph was facing. And we would document it like that, every individual one, until there wasn't any more. <laughs> <laughs> it was just, it seems like a slow process, but after a while it was, you know, it, we were just being thorough of the area, and then we would move on to the next one, move on to the next one, depending on which site it was. It was either pottery shards or petroglyphs, but it was just on to the next site, on to the next site, to whatever we could find. Yeah, so was it when you first came on, and neither of you, it sounds like, had done archaeology before, was it really like infield training, or did you guys have some days in advance that you were learning about the different types of of archaeology or how did how did you guys go about learning how to do the documentation process like chuck said i came on not too long after him into the project a few months later but when i got on with the project it was a lot of going on to old sites that hadn't been recorded in maybe you know 40 to 50 years and a lot of times it was just a circle on a map you know and saying that uh there's artifacts here so when we go out with Aaron, a lot of times we have to GPS exactly where the last uh, artifact is found and where the first artifact is found. So we get a better understanding of exactly what's out there. And it was to the point, you know, we were flagging each individual shirt in a five by five area. And sometimes it could be, you know, sometimes the clusters would be 50 shirts in that in that area or sometimes it would just be a couple, but we'd still have to, you know, set out the set out the hundred meter tape, set down the flags uh, for the five by five meters, and then go into those boxes and 
find out what was there and flag them so we get an unbiased representation of what's really out there with the sherds and stuff and uh, the arrow points and the geoglyphs. But later on, we started working on these petroglyphs and going along these ridges and mesa tops and really uh, seeing exactly how much is out there. And I don't know if we're exactly allowed to say how many is out there right now that we have entered in the database, but it's in the thousands. It's going to be, you know, one of the biggest petroglyph sites in the Southwest when we're done with this this database, hopefully. But it's been a long process. And what we've been entering into the system is the petroglyphs one by one as they're logged. So each individual uh, motif has a different code. And then Aaron takes GPS points of the obsidian we find, the arrow points we find, the shirts we find. And every site has a new GPS border of where it starts and ends now, as opposed to, like I said, just being a circle on a map. Because when it was like that, it was kind of hard to go out there and he would, you know, would spread out into survey mode. <laughs> and then uh, all of us would start walking uh, along alongside each other and somebody would find something would all stop Aaron would have to come over and look at it GPS it would all start walking again and just like Chuck said one by one would would find these sites until the point where it got super dense and like we'd have to set up the five by five meters to get an unbiased representation of what was out there and we found so many sites out there and it was really just a great opportunity to be a part of it and see what's out there because it's uh, not only indigenous history, it's uh, the history, you know, me and Chuck share together as Quetzal people. So just a great opportunity to be out there with Aaron. Yeah, that's, I mean, it sounds a lot like Southwest Colorado where, you know, people joke that there's only one site per acre, but the site's an acre. I mean, (laughs) sounds like the same kind of thing. So I'm curious, like if it's so dense and there's so much archaeology, so much, you know, it sounds like really incredible archaeology. Why do you think it hasn't been recognized until now? There's a really long answer to that question. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Aaron would be the one to answer that one. That's for sure. So in Southwest archaeology, most people envision things like Ancestral Pueblo Ruins, Mesa Verde, Chaco Canyon. If you're in Southern Arizona, you're thinking Pueblo Grande, Casa Grande, you know, big, substantial sites, ball courts, platform mounds, as people like to call them. In the Western deserts, people didn't necessarily live like that or build that type of architecture. So the archaeological sites haven't received the amount of attention that they merit. And uh, so much so that there's a kind of a bizarre popular impression that it was inhabited by nomads or low population densities, which really there's no basis in the ethnohistoric record for that. And as we're learning from the archaeological record, that's absolutely not true either. But this part of the world, Southwest Arizona, if you look at it in the context of how archaeology has been done, in the Southwest, at least through the academic institutions, people don't run field schools outside of Yuma in the summer. So <laughs> if, if you're Sorry. if you're wanting to run a field school and train students and, and you know get publications, you're going to do your field school at higher elevations. And so academic institutions have shied away from Southwest Arizona, Southeast California, just because it's unbearable in the summer. And then a, on, on top of that, this is a really remote place for, for academic institutions. The closest ones that actually have programs would be Tucson and San Diego and, and Phoenix, yeah, ASU. So 
So it's actually pretty remote. People just can't go out on you know the weekend really and do a little bit of field work or run a field class. And so it's just, it's not received the amount of attention through the ivory tower system in that way. Yeah, but then from a, a cultural resource perspective too, this is undeveloped territory still. And that's one of the reasons we're heavily invested into it because we want to make sure that this cultural landscape is preserved because the development is coming. And so without, without development, most archaeology doesn't get done today. So the research that has been done in this area it, to any significant extent has been around uh, the Salton Sea, Lake Kuya, with development, residential development there. And then south of uh, the Gila River in the, on the bombing ranges, they've done a lot of work. But um, actually in the Great Bend, it's still a rural, a whole, a whole rural landscape. And what uh, what types of particular development are you anticipating might come into the area? Just basically like sprawl from Phoenix or what are you guys envisioning? It's sprawl and what sprawl brings with it. I mean, anyone can look at the West Valley today and uh, compare to, to what, the way it looked 10 years ago and, and just envision the continued expansion, the West Valley of Phoenix, that is. Yeah. So it's um, it's eating up. It's eating up the rural West. It's it, it's eating up cultural landscapes, ranching landscapes, farming landscapes. Yep. And eventually they're just going to come through and destroy all of that. Yeah. Especially because people put cities a lot of times where people put cities in the past, right? You know, like good landscapes are good landscapes. Although I think there was an interesting point that you guys brought up in the magazine that, you know, for the area that you're looking at, for example, the landscape has been artificially changed quite a bit since what it would have looked like, you know, historically, but especially prehistorically. Do you want to mention that real quick? Well, the Gila River was effectively killed in the early part of the 20th century. It hasn't flowed in any regularity since about 1920, approximately, at least in uh, below, um, below Phoenix. And uh, so the, the riparian habitat, does look anything like what it did, say, 100 years ago. That aspect of that landscape is dramatically different. But the cultural element to that, the deep history, is is very much uh, the way it was in the past. Okay, so we are already at our second break. But when we come back, I especially want to talk more again about bringing the work back to the tribes and and what the reactions have been like there and protection for the area and, and what you guys are, are advocating for on that front. So we will be right back to talk about all of that here in a moment. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. 
Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right. So we're back from our second and final break. And what I was hoping to ask you guys about was, so obviously Chuck and Zion, you guys are are very involved in this project, but have other people from Quetzon also been involved in this project? Uh, we reached out to Quetzon early in our conservation efforts. And at that time we were corresponding predominantly with the cultural committee. The Quetzon Cultural Committee is a volunteer organization that interfaces with the uh, tribal council there and is really at the forefront of historic preservation for tribal interests in the community. And so it was really through working with Manfred Scott, who's the acting chair, and Lori Kachora, who was on the committee early on, and he's a a well-respected elder in the community, that we've really been able to engage with the Quetzon community. And it was... For the Elgreet project, we approached uh, Mr. Manfred Scott with the idea of seeing if he can't find folks within the community who would be interested in working on the project. And um, so that's how pretty much everybody that's worked on the project in the field has been involved. And uh, we have Chuck and and, and uh, Charles and Zion with us today, but we've had a number of other uh, community members involved in the project over the years as well. So it's, it's been, it's been good. And uh, we hope to have more um, as we move forward. Yeah. I'm definitely thankful for the cultural committee. That's so like Aaron had said, that's how I had learned about the project and really it was just my aunt who had given me the opportunity and said, Hey, you might like this. So really thankful for them. And your aunt was on the committee. Is that right, Charles? Oh yeah. My aunt Jerlin, my aunt Jerlin Swift Arrow. Yes, she was. I think she is, still is. Maybe not so much now, but I do believe. Yeah, I just wanted to say it was only through the committee as well that I, I learned about, you know, the project and internship. And I was serving briefly on the committee just for a couple of months, a few months myself. But they were gracious enough to let me, you know, intern with Archaeology Southwest. And the internship kind of turned into employment after a while because we've been on now for a year and a half. And the project's been going really good and we've been getting a lot of good data from it. But it was only through the committee, you know, that we were really given the opportunity and connected through South, Archaeology Southwest so just thankful for them. It's not just the Elgree project either. They're, they're pretty much involved in everything around the area, I'm sure. My impression is they cover all of the ancestral lands of Quetzon. So they're up at Avikwa May and Pilot Knob and South Mountain. Yeah, they have to correspond to a lot of upcoming project and projects and surveying projects and things like that that come their way. You know, there's a lot that they have to sift through and correspond to. And it's just, you know, it's all volunteer work that they volunteer for the culture committee. But, you know, we're just uh, real grateful for them that they do the work that they do. Uh, when I speak too on these topics, I speak only for myself, you know, as a member of the Quechan tribe. I don't speak for, you know, any other tribal affiliations. I'm just, you know, speaking as a person who's been on the project now for a year and a half and sharing my experience here on the podcast with you guys. Speaking as a as for myself and not a tribal member, I mean, uh, the cultural committee is doing a lot of good things, and we are they are working towards preservation and stuff. But it always feels like we be, we can be doing more. 
Yeah. So I, I also want to touch on something that you guys were just talking about there about, you know, the opportunity to become an intern and what that's been like. What do you think that if other, uh, you know, CRM firms or land management agencies or, you know, other people are, are interested in working with the tribes and having tribal interns, what would be some like recommendations you would have for them? Like in terms of recruiting, like you like obviously in this case, they went through the culture committee or in terms of like what makes for a good internship, what what recommendations would you have? From my experience, having a working, a positive working relationship with the cultural representatives from each tribe is important. Uh, that's really the segue into the community. In this particular instance, I really wanted to work with tribal members and working in archaeology I don't see a lot of tribal archaeologists or or, or or tribal people working in archaeology, and I've that's a problem for me. And uh, wanted, so I wanted to provide an opportunity for people that didn't have necessarily a, a background or a training, because in my opinion, doing basic field archaeology doesn't require a college degree. It, it requires obviously some physical ability to do it, but then it, it, it requires the interest and the will to do it. Archaeology is an institution, and with that are institutional procedures. And there's a significant hurdle for people that want to get interested in archaeology if they don't go to college. And that college degree as a prerequisite for doing f- field archaeology if we want to make archaeology more diverse, I think we need to reconsider the sort of prerequisites for getting into the field. We would need to get with our youth among amongst our tribes and trying to get that interest, like with the, the jobs that me, me and Zion are working on. You know, we're kind of representing our tribe a little bit, but really it's just trying to get the, the youngsters out there, the young people, the the interest, because there's not a whole lot of interest, like Aaron was saying, there's not a whole lot of native surveyors or, you know, archaeologists or field technicians or, you know, there's not, I didn't know what the job was. I really don't expect a whole lot of interest in a younger generation. Right. Like Aaron was saying, you know, it takes a special kind of individual to want to do the kind of work that we're involved with, involved in right now and, you know, given the opportunity to be because, you know, what it takes to get the data that in the volumes that we're collecting them in, it takes, you know, staying out there for four days out of the week and being home for three days and not being in a bed, you know, that means, you know, for the, the four days and then coming back home and then having, you know, limited showers and limited time with your family, you know, you really got to have a passion for the work that you're, you're doing and, you know, we're given that opportunity and, you know, thankfully, you know, I think we're representing our tribe in a little, a little bit, you know, doing that kind of work, you know, and taking that perseverance and integrity and have the tenacity to do it and stay out there for the time and, you know, do what's required of us. Yeah. Cause a lot of what we're doing now is like, it's not easy work. And you try to approach a younger person and try to get them to do that kind of job. It's, it's not going to be easy. There's nothing glorious about it. No showers, you know, we're in the field, it's hot. It's it's not easy to do, but with the articles that have been coming out and the work that we have been doing and the the notoriety, it's I think we're gaining like a little bit of an interest for young people to come out and see what it's all about, to reconnect with their culture and just to be 
out there just to see what it's like. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I really wanted to get out of this is to learn about the people I work with and, and in this context, the members of the descendant communities. And so I think for other people that work in this profession that want to engage descendant communities, you know, having a willingness to listen to them and having a willingness to learn from them is part of the formula to, for it to be successful. Absolutely. So, okay, you were all talking about kind of the the unglamorous part of archaeology, no showers, you're camping. What makes it worth it? <laughs> right? Big questions. I would say the small victories, they add up. And uh, the long-term vision, it's about setting goals and reaching them. And then you set the next goal. What really makes it worth it? not showering and being out there and just really roughing it is waking up at six in the morning just to get ready and walking out to a site and being shown the site and saying, okay, we're going to cover this much ground today. And actually at the end of the day, covering that much ground and looking back at the work we've done, like not just recording uh, petroglyphs or documenting, you know, it's just looking back and saying, whoa, we really did just, hiked that whole hill and did all the petroglyphs on the cliffside. Like it's like a good amount of area, but it's just putting it into perspective. Like every day, like, Whoa, we did that. Like that was our contribution for the day. This is what we did. And then by the end of the week, it's like, well, we finished like this side or, you know, just recently it was that whole, like I was saying a cliff face. We were, we, I personally didn't think we were going to get it done in four days, but we got it done in four days. And leaving that site was just, it was kind of an experience just to think about it, just to say, like, I hiked that and I helped document all that. But, you know, no, nobody's ever really going to see it because it's so remote for the most part. But I feel better about myself knowing that I contributed that much towards the project. For myself, I would say what really makes it worth it to be out there is like Aaron said, small victories when we get done with the site. And like Chuck said, to know that it's logged and that it's done. And uh, we have a modern, you know, perception of what's out there. And, you know, I get to say, you know, relay that message on to my people. And, you know, if I didn't do it myself, somebody else would have done it. Maybe a non-Indigenous person who would have just been collecting data. But me, you know, being out there, I get to be connected with the land and be connected with, you know, the history that my people carry. And I get to say, you know, these these things were out there and we don't get it just from a book or, you know, get it from, you know, a database that might, you know, eventually be answered for for years to come if these things do, you know, start disappearing. But um, what really makes it worth it is uh, every site we log, you know, after it gets done, like Chuck, Chuck said just now, you know, fills your heart a little bit knowing that it's logged and that it's done and that there's a new outlook on what's there. Because like I said prior, it's um a lot of times just a circle on a map or you know, in GPS coordinates on where artifacts are and we get to go out there and freshen up those data. I think at the end of the day of the day what what makes this kind of work worth it for me is it's the relationships and um it's the building those relationships and working towards a common goal and seeing results. And the results don't necessarily come as fast as we want and they may not look exactly like what we want, but we make progress every day that we get up and sweat and come back and, and, and lay down. And uh, um, it's, it's, it's about growing. 
and basically being being more than ourselves. Because the job is really like it just seems like we're living out there like bums for a while <laughs> during the week, and it's not glorious. It's, it's not it's not anything pretty, but at the end of the day, we're we're actually making big steps towards preservation of the, the area and stuff. And you definitely don't see that when you're out there doc- documenting. You definitely don't see that or feel like that when you're doing data entry. It's just, nah, like the, the articles that are written and stuff about us, it's just like, it, it brings it all into perspective. So that daily work doesn't feel like daily work. And so you see the bigger picture and that's what we're just contributing to. So every day just grinding it out making sure we get it done and then when we get it done it just takes a while it takes months maybe it takes years actually to have it all just condensed together and then you can see why you're out there every day and can we say how many uh petroglyphs we found so far or you want to wait on that well we can we can give some numbers if that's an interest you want uh, to i think it'd give a little perspective on what's been done you know yeah, we estimated um, when we started this conservation project that there might be about a hundred thousand petroglyphs in the Great Bend area. At the time, I thought maybe that's a little high, but based on the limited information available at the time, it seemed possible. After working on El Grape, I'm very confident that number is actually true, if not an underrepresentation. So, amongst us on our project, we've um, documented about 35,000 petroglyphs in just a, a certain section of the Great Bend of the Gila, not even a, a 20% of the Great Bend of the Gila we've been working in. So uh, projecting outward, it's, it's definitely one of the highest concentrations of, uh, of petroglyphs in the Southwest is, is this Great Bend of the Gila region. Right. And it also has geoglyphs from what I understand, correct? That's correct. You can call them geoglyphs, ground figures, gravel pictographs. They have a lot of different names depending on who's speaking. But uh, yes, definitely there's a a plethora of those in the area. They're very enigmatic. I'm still trying to wrap my head around them as I believe a lot of people are. And and I'd be curious to hear what what, uh, Zion and Chuck think about those things. Honestly, I don't don't have any perspective on it. It's just they're there. I as much as I try to interpret from what I, what I see, it's just, what do I know? I'm, I wasn't there. <laughs> I can relate it to myself or however at that moment, but the person who, or people who made that, like, what were they thinking? I don't, I wouldn't have any clue. <laughs> I'm entirely convinced that they're, they're expressions of indigenous spirituality on the land. Right. Okay. I can't necessarily speak about that myself. I would say, you know, as an indigenous person, seeing these uh, geoglyphs on top of these mesa ridges typically are where they're at, you know, um, circles of them, just, you know, lines of them, the Abanitas, you know. I think uh, Aaron and I, he's talked to me about it, trying to come uh, with the correlation between, you know, where these Abanitas are actually facing. And we've both, I think, kind of come to an agreement that they point towards a spiritual mountain uh, that it's really important to us as uh, indigenous people, as Quetzal people. It's a mountain that I referenced in the past of Iquamay, Newbury Mountain, all of these Abanitas that we are coming across on, you know, the El Grip Mesa ridges are pointing towards the northwest. So it's north 
in the West. So that's, you know, the area from where we're working and that's, that's directly towards that area and these, these rock rings that are out there, you know, undoubtedly, like I think Aaron was, you know, saying that, you know, they're used for spiritual aspects, you know, of culture because somebody took the time to pick up a 20 pound rock and set it in a formation for what, not for, I think the fun of it. Cause you know, you have to climb up to the top of these Mesa ridges, get to the top and carry these rocks and put them in the formations. It's hot, it's, you know, tedious work. And uh, they use them because, you know, we've come to find that they've sat there for hundreds, if not thousands of years because of, you know, the caliche not being on top of the rocks, it worn away. You know, these are geoglyphs that haven't been touched for a lot of years. So we do our best to log them, not touch them or, you know, disturb them in, in any manner. But I think they're, you know, used for spiritual aspects and culture. There's definitely a spiritual significance toward them. They wouldn't they wouldn't have done it unless they had something to say. That's definitely for sure. That's all I could add to that. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so with that spiritual significance in mind, what would you want people to know about the area? Like what would you want them to be advocating for the area in a certain way? Would you want them to be acting in a certain way when they're there? Would you, you know, what would you hope from people listening to this episode? I don't know if the area we're working in, I would want people to actually go visit. It's not that I'm trying to say that our culture and our history shouldn't be recorded or brought out to the world but with that bringing in that just opens the area to open to visitors and you know possible destruction of glyphs of these rocks and it may not be through any fault of the person visiting because there isn't anybody out there to necessarily tell them what's the right way to go about visiting these sites because there is an area called painted rocks it's a nice little cluster of rocks in the middle of nowhere with a lot of uh, petroglyphs on it. And through the visiting of the area, a lot of the petroglyphs along the base of that little mound, the pile of rocks, is it's eroded. Not through necessarily anybody's specific like intention, but just the information being out there and people just being naturally curious to go and visit these sites they they destroy them if we do work towards something like like a national monument or something like that to have areas protected that we are working in i wouldn't necessarily want people to, to know that area i had seen a podcast or listened to a podcast where a man said if it's a part of the history of the area he's living in then why can't he have the opportunity or kind of like the right to go and visit these areas. And while it's not particularly, particularly the, that person's culture, but it doesn't mean he has the right to go and sit in these areas or, you know, draw attention to these areas because it's just going to destroy all this stuff, all the stuff that we're documenting. I would just say, uh, I think without knowing cultural history, you can't have a real appreciation for the area in itself. So I think um, anybody visiting it, who's not indigenous or doesn't know that would want to keep in mind the word preservation. You know, if I'm not, or if I'm doing something that's not preserving the site, you know, am I wrong or am I doing something wrong? Every, everything we do, we're uh, doing, you know, in the hopes of preservation, we're going out to these sites 
and leaving them and not I'm not visiting them after I leave them. You know, if the time comes where I did want to visit them, you know, I feel like I would have, you know, somewhat of a right to because I know my cultural history. It would have a certain respect for this that a non-Indigenous person might not have or a non-Native person. But I would just want them to have a certain respect uh, in mind and just, like I said, keep that word in mind, preservation, because that's what we're, the, the end goal is for us out there. I would like people to come away with a, a deeper respect and awareness of the significance of the landscape uh, in all of its dimensions out there. In archaeology, we often can dif- differentiate between the archaeological past and what academics call history, and that something changed at 1450 or 1550 or put a date on it. And that the people in 1550 weren't the people there in 1450. I can't speak for other regions in the Southwest, but in in this particular region, there's a lot of continuity. And these aren't archaeological sites that no one has a connection to. There's a very vibrant legacy amongst many tribes connected to this land. And you can see it in the archaeology. You can see it in the modern art forms that they've carry on their their clothing their language and just because there aren't reservations nearby doesn't mean that people aren't connected to this place in other ways and and, and, in ways that we may not see or or really appreciate until we actually um, get to meet with people and talk with people and really understand the bigger picture yeah absolutely any final thoughts to close this out So for anyone listening, definitely check out the Archaeology Southwest magazine issue on this particular topic. It's Eeyore Kristnav, volume 34, number one. Again, it'll be in the show notes. So definitely check that out for more information. Any final closeout thoughts from any of the three of you? Anything that you are burning to share with the audience? Thank you for listening. Um, I'm thankful for the opportunity to be here. I'm thankful to my tribe. I'm thankful to Archaeology Southwest for giving us this opportunity to be on the project and, you know, experience a side of culture that, you know, I didn't get experience before. Yeah, that sounded really good. Yeah, right? (laughs) 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 Well, thank all of you for coming on again. Really appreciate it. And... Can't wait to share this episode. And now again, now that we've done it, re-look through the magazine again and see it with new eyes. So thank you. Thanks for listening to the Heritage Voices podcast. You can find show notes at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash heritage voices. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Music Store. Also, if you like the show, please share with your friends or write us a review. If you have any questions, comments, or show suggestions, please reach out to me at jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org or you can find me on Facebook through Living Heritage Anthropology or on Twitter at Living Heritage A. As always, thank you to Lyle Blanqua and Jason Nez for their collaboration on our incredible logo. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. 
Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Fro.